Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's interesting, I was reading an interview with you where you spoke about how you've always been quite committed to not just portraying the positive aspects of yourself in your music and your songwriting, but also the negative and kind of giving a full picture of yourself and not being afraid to share anything. Was that something you were able to do from when you first started songwriting or was that a point you kind of had to get to? I don't know, they're kind of not as, per- like when I first started making music, it definitely wasn't as personal. I mean, it was and it wasn't. I feel like when I listen to it now, it sometimes it is like so cringe. It's very emo. <laughs> Other times, it was more more like overtly satirical. It was how can I describe it? I mean, I was listening to a lot of bands like the Dead Milkmen and stuff, and so like I was trying to be funny a lot of times or like make some sort of ironic commentary on like <laughs> society as a whole. But then later, I guess I started doing like this is bands before TV Girl. Um, some bands were like really, uh, overtly emotional. I was, I was actually digging out some of this old music recently and it was like kind of hard to listen to for a lot of reasons. All right. Did you not have a, like a moldy peaches cover band type thing? Uh, it wasn't a moldy peaches cover band. We, I had a band and we did cover the moldy peaches. That's ah, okay. definitely happened. That was my band, the ginger snaps in college. We covered not one, but two different <laughs> moldy peaches songs. <laughs> At least one show we did two songs from Moldy Peaches. I quite like them. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff I was doing was like sort of, I really loved Adam Green and just like talking nonsense and saying crazy stuff sometimes. And yeah, they were definitely strangely kind of influential, at least to me back then. I still like that band, but. Was that a rap cover group, actually? Is that where I'm getting that idea from? Uh, that's, no, I did, I had a different band and we were, we did play two shows and it was a rap cover band. That was also in college. We just played parties and stuff. So that wasn't really like a real band per se. Just a kind of fun musical outlet as opposed to one that's a little more serious. Definitely. I mean, I wouldn't call the Ginger Snaps serious, but that was, yeah, that was my real, that was my band. Like that, you know, that was my real band. And then I had this other band 
the super rap all-stars and we would, we played two parties in college and I did Nas songs and like Jay-Z and uh, some other, forget who else, Outkast and I can't remember who else. Is this around the Son of Sam time? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Is that what kind of got you into making beats then? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I was like, yeah, in college I got really into listening to hip hop. I loved hip hop. I still love hip hop. And I tried to make, yeah, I started making beats on a computer. I think because I was like, I was really into Paul's Boutique, that album. Specifically, I think that's the one that really got me like, opened my eyes to just how cool it was to do like, you know, sampling and to sort of like combine disparate elements and all that stuff. So I started making beats and I tried to like make beats for other rappers at first, but those beats were really like, you know, primitive. If I listen to them now, they're like pretty, uh, pretty basic and like not very good, but didn't ever get any other rappers to rap on them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was just learning. And then I guess when TV girl started, we had the idea to, we were in, I had another band with Trung, who was the other guy who started TV girl. And it was like sort of a Beatles-esque guitar band that was like kind of, we were trying to make like, um, like girl group style music. We were really into girl groups, like the Shrells and uh, just Phil Spector kind of, uh, you know, the Crystals, all that stuff. Shrells, that's like, well, you still love me tomorrow, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we just had this band that was doing that and we were trying to like be as faithful to that as possible. And then we started TV Girl sort of, we had the idea to like, what if we just like, tried to make that kind of music still but like just was completely like electronic and there's be samples and stuff and that that'd be at least be something different that like i I don't know i never really heard someone do that so much before so that was kind of the genesis of tv girl at first has what you look for in a sample changed since then or is that something that's remained consistent for you i don't know i feel like it's mostly the same I, i look for catchy catchy things that just sound pretty most of the time and that's been pretty consistent. I'd say nowadays, I, I definitely think it's cooler to use like something more obscure or something that's like harder to sort of like mold into something that sounds good. Instead of back then, I would just kind of rip like, I don't know, like a full Todd Rundgren intro if I thought it sounded good. <laughs> and now I think it's better to just take if you took like one chord from something and then a different chord from another song and like no one can even tell where they came from. Like to me, that's more interesting to do now the days. Just because you're completely making something new from it. Yeah, it it does feel like you are constructing something new that's totally like that you can at least claim a little bit more ownership over, if not legally, then at least like, uh, you know, personally. Yeah. What about when you're pulling a sample from like a TV or show or something? Because you know you're looking for something catchy at that point. Is it more coming down to the words rather than the rhythm of it? Or a lot of times, I guess I'm trying to find if it's like a vocal sample, it's something that's sort of a relates to the the theme of the music is what I try to do. Cause I mean, like I've said before, I mean, if you make a, it's funny, if you make a hip hop beat or like a cool spacey beat, you could literally pretty, pretty much put anything of people talking over it and it'll sound like cool so, so, for some reason. You know what I mean? Like you could have some beat and then you could have, uh, you know, Winston Churchill talking about something in the thirties and it would sound cool just because I don't know. It's just, for some reason, people talking over hip hop beats is cool. It sounds cool. So anybody could do that and they might, they might want to do that. But I, to me, it's interesting if, uh, or it's just better if it somehow relates to the music, you know what I mean? The song, the lyrics. Yeah. It's interesting though, because on the Bloodbath 
LP, you're kind of getting a little bit more abstract in terms of both the samples and what you're doing lyrically. Well, yeah, I mean, because that one, I mean, it's uh, that project is it was fun because yeah, I, I didn't hold myself to those standards when I was making that record. I was like, well, I'll just put whatever sounds good because this isn't really my real band. You know, it's not like my it's not like an artistic statement to me the way that like a, I think a TV girl record should be. It's kind of a little bit like Talking Headsy in terms of what it's done lyrically. Like it's strange because although it feels abstract, it also feels like there's some kind of weighted meaning to it. Well, yeah, I mean, I couldn't get away from, you know, when I started writing songs, I, that's, it's easier for me to write something if I have some sort of, you know, actual idea and I want to say something because I would love to write something like the Talking Heads or like, you know, Beck or Pavement where they, they a lot of times truly do just like nonsense lyrics that that don't really make any literal sense at all but they're still good sometimes but i don't know i've never been able to to write like that or i've never really tried when it's interesting you were mentioned that the blood uh yeah the blood bethlp kind of felt like something a little bit separate when was the seed for it first planted in your mind and was it did it come as the idea for a side project well it all started because we went we were went, we went on tour with george clanton do you know george clanton yeah, yeah, yeah vaporwave guy yeah he's like a vaporwave you know pioneer impersonario uh what do you call it a uh, uh svengali and uh <laughs> We were just in the van and he was talking about uh, how he was about to put on the world's first vaporwave festival and he was talking all all about it. And I thought it sounded cool and I I thought it was a great idea. So I was like, I want to get in on this. Like, I got to make a vaporwave project. Like, how hard could it really be to make this music? You know, like, pretty much (laughs) just joking around with him. Like, (laughs) so easy. You just like take an old 80s song, slow put reverb on it and boom, you got like a classic vaporwave song. And then I was like, and then you just it's easy to come up with a name too. you just like, you know, something from the nineties that like sounds kind of just like vague and uh, <laughs> evocative. And I was just like, you know, like a fake video, like some Nintendo 64 game, like fake Nintendo 64 game, like bloodbath 64. I just came up with it right there. We all thought it was funny. I just, when I got home, I just started to do that. I was like, I'm just going to do like a vaporwave album real quick. Like, you know, I'm just gonna make one. Like how hard could it be? Then I started making it and I was like, man, some of this is actually sounding like cool to me. Like, so I put a, started putting a little more thought into it. <laughs> I tried to make it actually kind of good. I couldn't help it. <laughs> and so that was just basically joking around with George. That's how it all started. And I just kind of took that jo- joke to, to completion instead of just bullshitting in the van. But he still didn't invite me to perform at the festival. <laughs> oh, well. Was there... Was there something in that mindset, that idea of not putting any pressure on yourself and just making something for a joke that kind of bled into it musically? Definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was actually, it was fun to make. Like, I made it in two weeks, like, because I didn't care. I was like, it doesn't really need to be great. You know, I'm just doing it as a joke anyway. So, like, I'm just going to do whatever the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's like, that's what's, you know, it's fun to do side projects like that because it's, there is a part of me that wants to make big, you know, artistic statements and hold it up to be judged in that way. And that's what TV girl to me is for, but that's not the only reason I would want to make music or it's not the sole purpose of music. I mean, I think that's, it's a shame because, you know, a lot of people I think get stuck in, in that, unfortunately get stuck into like having their records be judged. You know, if you're, 
St. Vincent or whatever, and you put out a classic record, like everyone's going to look at your next record and judge it against that one. And like, what's wrong with St. Vincent just like fucking around on the guitar for an album and like just making something that's just, you know, fun instead of like a, a major artistic statement. I'm sure she would love to do that, but it's hard once you get stuck in that cycle. So I think at least with this, when it's a side project, it's easy to separate those two uh, impulses. Was Mighty Acid like a similar thing for you in that regard? Totally. That kind of a similar free thing, yeah. Definitely. I mean, that one was, that was, was really fun because like with those lyrics, I was just like, I'm not going to have that. These have to, they don't have to make sense. They just like, it's just going to be pure wordplay. Like just <laughs> trying to come up with a funny line, you know, it's, it's no emotion behind it. Nothing like that. So that was just fun. It was like purely fun, which was, it was really cool, fun to make that record. Could the French exit outtakes also take on a similar role that you released last year? Because you kind of have that sticker of outtakes on it. It takes the pressure off and it's more something a little different or. Mm, I mean, yeah, uh, in a way, because yeah, when you say it's outtakes, I mean, it's not, um, you're kind of just saying outright that like, these aren't, uh, These weren't the, the best of the best. These were just like what we had lying around and this just didn't make the cut, but they're still might be worth hearing. But at least I was trying, you know, when I made those songs, I was trying to write like a, you know, a really good song. How come you came to release them? We were going to release them because we were going to do this tour, the six and a half year anniversary of French Exit, where we we're going to play the album in full. That's the tour that we're going to still do now, but just got delayed for a year and a half. And we were just going to like put that out to basically promote the tour. Do you, do you find you make music more often during the day or at night? I don't know. Either one. It's not really a daytime thing. It's more of like, um, I'll go through periods of just not making music at all for a long time. And then when I do start getting serious about it, I'll pretty much work on it all day until it's done. That's kind of the state I'm in at the moment. With a new TV go record. Yeah. Kind of like 12 hour days. Uh, not definitely not 12 hour days. <laughs> But uh, I'll work on it every day when I, if I have a chance to. Like this, this morning, you know, I, I ha- we have to do rehearsals for the tour, which takes up a lot of the day. But like this morning, I woke up, even though I was hungover, and I, I worked on the music a little bit. We'll go do rehearsals, and then when I come home later, I'll probably work on it some more. Do you find when, once you kind of get to a point where you're happy with it, will you leave it for a little bit to come back to it with some more perspective? Um, just the nature of actually finalizing the songs takes so long that I listen to them, you know, again and again and again, it takes so long to sort of finish a record that by the time you're get at the point where you're finishing, you know, I've, I've already listened to it more than anyone else on the planet will ever listen to it. So, I mean, you naturally kind of like get some perspective on it that way. I think. How long will you be in this period then that you're in at the moment where you're working on it every day? Kind of hard to say because let's see, realistically, you know, we probably want to put it out with the vinyl and, there's like a six months turnaround time for vinyl. So if I finished it in the next two months, then it wouldn't, you know, it's going to come out next year <laughs> at the very least. So it's going to be six months or more, probably more, probably like a year, honestly, from this point to putting it out, if I had to guess. I was just thinking back to what we were saying about the, the Bloodbath record and how it initially started off as a jokey thing, but then you kind of decided you wanted to take it and make it good and make it a little bit more serious. Is that because, do you think you need to be challenged to be like creatively fulfilled? <laughs> Is that where that's coming from? I was just thinking about it there. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, like I, like I said, I started working on the beats 
as a joke, I was just like, I'm going to do this real quick. Like it's going to be, it's basically just going to be like a parody of Vaporwave. I'm just going to take old, old eighties beats, slow them down. Like that's what some Vaporwave albums are. And they're, those are good. You know, I like those albums and it's going to be really easy. I'm not going to put any work into it. I'm just going to basically prove how easy it is to make. But then I started making it, you know, and I was just like, man, these are, these are actually cool. Like I should put a little more thought into it, like kind of try to make it cohesive and, if I do write lyrics for it, like they should be kind of good at least, not just totally bad. With the way that you had such a strong concept for the album and what you wanted it to be, will you do a similar thing when you're working on a TV goal record? Will you figure out what exactly it is you want to do and then kind of pursue it from there? Kind of, sometimes. Uh, for this new record, definitely. Sort of a strong conceptual element to it. It's uh, sort of going to be like very gospel, soul-influenced music sort of like a take on gospel music from a perspective of someone who's not religious, sort of like hopeless gospel music, but instead of hopeful and empowering, it's hopeless and despairing, <laughs> but it has the sort of, um, the music is, is going to be very evocative of the, the music that is empowering and mm, what would be the word inspirational. And so there's going to be a dissonance between the, content of the the lyrics and the sound of the music which has kind of always been there in tv girl does it give it a distance do you think in what way in terms of emotionally do you feel like there was a slight distance to it as a result of that making a record about you know faith and that or hope and that no way when- because i i feel those things <laughs> i mean i feel despairing i feel hopeless sometimes so it's not hard to get into that mindset especially you know the way the world is right now and just the way life is it's very easy to just kind of get into that headspace for me, at least. So the lyrics are pretty personal and, you know, I feel all the things that I'm going to be saying on this record for the most part, but there is some distance in that, you know, it is sort of playing with the tropes of gospel music. So there is sort of a, um, a cheekiness to them for sure. What about, it's interesting where you said that you find it easy to get into that headspace where you can speak about those things. What about for the inverse when you're working on the music and it's kind of tackling the inverse of that? Is it a different process to get into the mood for making music of that nature? Well, it's funny because most times I like things to be upbeat and sort of catchy when I listen to music. That's the kind of music I like. To sound like that, I don't really listen to like stuff that's very depressing a lot of times. Sometimes I do, but at least it has to be catchy and have a good melody most times for me to really like music. So I don't know. For me, that's sort of the bottom line. A song has to be catchy. That's like kind of a, just a baseline for me to, to like it. Does the headspace differ when you're working on music as opposed to lyrics? Creatively for you? Does the headspace... No, I mean, it's, I feel like it's all... Because I write lyrics and make music pretty much like at the same time. I don't make the beat and then write the lyrics later. I'll be working on the beat and then I'll be listening to it and something will start to come to me. And no, it's not. It's all one headspace because, you know, it's all, it's all a holistic process. You know, life is... Emotions are complicated. Sometimes there's hope, hope and despair and vice versa. You know what I mean? There's, nothing's really one way or the other in anything in life. You know what I'm talking about? Does that make sense? Yeah, there's always kind of a... Yeah, there's always a juxtaposition It seems to be at the heart of everything. Yeah, exactly. There's always things so, that are pulling you in different directions. If a song sounds kind of, you know, superficially happy and there's depressing lyrics, well, there's a lot of anal- analogous things in life that are like that. Almost everything, you know? Someone can look happy and feel sad on the inside, vice versa. Things can be good now and bad, even when you know they're going to be bad later. 
So there's always that juxtaposition. So I feel like that's, it is a holistic process. It's not separate. Yeah, it seems something. It's like a that contrast always seems to be very ripe for exploring creatively as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where this sweet spot is when you really kind of dig at if you can do or say something that really kind of gets at the heart of how I don't want to say complicated life can be, but just how um, paradoxical it can be. You know, that's where the truth really is in between those lines. Yeah. So if you can say something that kind of really gets to the heart of that, I mean, that's like I feel like that's really then you really have have hit something that will resonate at least for me. You know, when, some, when people put out some, a music that's very empowering, it feels funny to me. Or even if uh, adopts is something that's like, you know, very, very depressive, like, you know, I don't know, some goth music or, or especially metal music. Like, it's very, it's, it's uh, comical when they're singing these lyrics. You know, if you listen to like black metal lyrics and they're just like, you know, a parody of like the dark despair, it's like, well, no one even really thinks like that. These guys who are making this music are probably joking around with their friends while they're in the studio. They're not really like this. You can sense that falseness. Yeah, definitely. And the opposite is true. When, you're, when you listen to someone who makes really happy or empowering music, like, I don't know, Beyonce or something, you know that she has a lot of darkness in her life and she doesn't really even feel the things. She doesn't really believe what she's singing when she makes really empowering music or an even better example would be this gospel music, which is very interesting because it's so lyrically the gospel music that I've been listening to. I really like it, but partly because when you hear these people talk about, and it's so positive, it's so empowering, but you know, that's, that's not the whole story with these people's lives. Everybody has problems in their lives and they have doubts. So when you're not hearing that, you're almost kind of reading between the lines or you're hearing someone sort of, almost inhabit a character or something. There's almost triggering your imagination in a way too. Do you start to wonder what's going on in those people's exactly. lives? Exactly. I mean, you read into some of these, these, some of the great gospel stars and they had the same dramas that, you know, mainstream rock stars had. Sex and money, drugs, you know, you name it. If you're taking a sample then that's quite gospel based on this record, do the lyrics almost become you trying to explore trying to explore those kind of hidden corners to it that aren't usually seen in gospel music. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's, that is what I want. Because when I listen to that gospel music, I'm like, this music sounds so great. It's like everything about the music is beautiful. The, the pianos and the, the harmonies and the backing vocals, it's all great. The only problem that's missing for me is like the lyrics don't really hit the... Even though some of the songs, the lyrics are great. Don't get me wrong. Like some of the songs are, are wonderful, but they're not, at least they're, they're not exploring the full spectrum of emotion, you know, that's available. And that's kind of, at least that's something that not a lot of people have done, at least to my, to my knowledge. See, I mean, that's, it's something that I want to hear that I haven't heard before. That's kind of what is driving me to make it, I think. Is this an idea you've had in your mind for a while then? Have you been listening to gospel music through the years? Yeah, because I I love gospel music. So I've always, you know, I've listened to it a lot. And I just thought, I did, did occur to me, I'm like someone, you know, it'd be cool if someone made a gospel record that was about doubt and uh, debauchery and everything that, that people in gospel music don't normally talk about would be interesting to me. So you know, that wasn't available for me to listen to. And that's so why I thought I'd, I'd make it myself if I could. I like that, that idea of making music for yourself to kind of fulfill that hole. Yeah. There's a lot of ideas that, you know, haven't been explored like that, you know. 
if you're it's interesting as well if you're not a man of faith how where do you kind of find the the themes that gospel music is talking about in your life well they're the kind of hope and the empowerment because even if well it's easy because everyone feels you know the religious aspect is just sort of you know literally believing in religion is just sort of the overlay that they put on top of the, the things that everyone experiences you know everyone feels um inspired uh or despairing or searching or everyone already does they would 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 relate to what they're trying to talk about anyways even if you you know they're just turned off by the fact that it's sort of about a literal religion which a lot of people don't subscribe to so that's sort of you know a non-starter for a lot of people when they listen to gospel music but me i don't care i mean i can listen to someone talk about something that i don't believe in at all and it still have value to me because at the core it's still talking about things that anyone could relate to do you believe in a higher power even if you're not drawn to any particular religion uh, i don't know i mean i think so i mean everyone everyone kind of is we we all answer to something higher than complete i mean hopefully unless you're like donald trump or something you believe in something outside of yourself i mean there's a reason why we we value the things we most people value things like you know love and friendship or like trying to be a good person or all these things that are sort of outside of yourself so you're lying if you say you don't believe in something beyond yourself i mean you're a fool really it doesn't have to be something like god you know literally god but it's there has to be some reason why people at least pretend <laughs> everyone's got to have a reason to believe like Bruce Springsteen said. Do you think that's maybe what draws us to tackling them in music as well? Like you mentioned love and friendship there. They're kind of, I mean, love in particular, that's the thing that most songs find themselves kind of circulating around. Right. Well, it's interesting. There's a lot of overlap between, you know, a lot of these gospel artists, <laughs> they wrote these beautiful songs that were talking about Jesus and God. And so, uh, who was it? The famous, I think it was, was it Sam Cooke? He started out as a gospel artist. One of my favorite songs is this song called, uh, let me just look it up if I can, because it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, easy to find. Well, while I look for it, I'll just explain the background. So there's this, of all the gospel songwriters, there's one in particular that I love better than all the rest. And it's this woman named Dorothy Love Cotes. And she just was a songwriter and totally worked in the gospel genre. She had some of the best songs, I mean, of all the people who wrote gospel music in the 50s and 60s, in my opinion. And so she had a song called uh, 99 and a Half, which is about, you know, it has a great chorus that says, you know, when you're referring to God, you know, your faith in God, she says, 70 won't make it, 80 God just won't take it. 90 is close and 99 is almost, but 99 and a half just won't do. That's referring to God's, you know, your faith in God. And so, you know, it's a really great chorus. And so whoever it was, a uh, uh, Wilson Pickett, that's who it was. So he came out with a song called, he just took that chorus and just, you know, transcribed it to talking about a uh, romantic relationship. And it's brilliant. It's like the same thing. Like sampling almost. Yeah. And so she also had a song, You Can't Hurry God, You'll Just Have to Wait. I mean, everyone knows the song that beca that, that became. Can't Hurry Love, it, You'll Just Have to Wait. And so a lot of these songs, you know, you can easily transcribe them to a romantic relationship, and people often do. And a lot of 
popular pop music tropes like started in gospel. They just took God and replaced it with a man or a woman. Because it's more relatable. Yeah. Yeah, it was fascinating when I found out like that some of these pop, these um, secular pop songs started out as gospel music, but it makes perfect sense when you stop and think about it. Do you ever do that in your own music? Like ideas that you maybe explored when you first began creating music, will you come back to them later on and look at them in a different way, from a different angle? I don't know. I'm not sure. There's definitely lyrics that I, um, from songs that were unreleased or something that I never finished and... I won't like the song in general, but uh, there'll be a line or two that I'll then cherry pick later and sort of either put them in a new song or just make a new song kind of around those specific lyrics. That's happened before. What would that lyric typically be? Would it be one of the ones referencing quite a specific experience? I don't know. And there's a lyric. Well, there was one song that I left, purposely left off the, uh, the French accent B-sides tape because even though it was probably one of the best of those B-sides, I was like, the chorus of this song is something that I think is really good. I think I'm just going to like save it and like use it for something else. And then it found its way into this new record that I'm working on. It's like the new chorus for this song that I'm working on, but I don't really want to reveal the exact lyric, you know. Did the context change quite rapidly though? Yeah, I think so because it was just sort of a clever line that I thought was good. It wasn't really the heart of the song before, but now I feel like when you really zero in on it, like that became the hook of the song and sort of the purpose of the song. Did you only come back to it because you were looking through those demos? Or would you have gone back to it anyway if you weren't going to re-release that? It was because I was going through the demos and I thought, I thought, damn, that's a good lyric. I should probably just take that. And Well, I was just working on a song concurrently on the new record. And you know, when I was trying to come up with a, a hook, I just started singing that. And I was like, oh, it works perfectly. It's funny how stuff just kind of happens in that way. Yeah. Yeah. How much stuff do you have in the archive then? Do you have quite a lot of demos and stuff kind of just hanging around from over the years? Oh, yeah. I mean, tons of stuff. I mean, it's a, lot of, a lot of it's just in the form of just unfinished ideas or sketches. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I've never put out. I mean, there's whole albums I've never put out. Completed albums. Finished. Um, more or less. Not not completed. How come they never kind of made it over the finish line? A lot of times they just kind of stall out and you just kind of work, start working on something else, you know, and then that is better. And then you just kind of like abandon that other thing and then just time passes and you're like, well, what am I going to do about this now? This isn't even as good as what I'm working on now. So like, and I haven't even finished what I'm working on now. So I might as well just finish that. Were there any projects that kind of fell by the wayside before the gospel uh, oriented album emerged? No, because after our last record, TV Girl record, I was sort of struggling with the uh, what direction to go on later. I felt like, you know, the last record, it was, um, it's good, but it's, I don't think it's as good as the one before because it was just, it was just a collection of songs, you know, it wasn't as good as conceptually good as who really cares, which I feel is, is very more cohesive as a whole as an album. And if I had to rate them, I would definitely put that one higher than the last one, even though I think the last one was good. Like I was talking before, it's like, you know, death of a party girl is, is a collection of good songs individually, but I don't think it's, it holds together as cohesively as, as some of the ones before. So after that, I kind of, after that album, I was like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to just put together a collection of songs. So I have this idea for a gospel album. I'm going to at least see where that takes me. Does it make it easier to work on songs? Like, are they less likely to fall? Would that record be less likely to fall by the wayside as a whole because you have that strong concept at the heart of it? I think so. Yeah, because I mean, now that I have the idea, I'm like, I have to do this. You know, it has to, it's too good of an idea not to, to put it out. Does it make it easier to make decisions throughout the process too? Yeah. If you have that idea at the core, yeah. To have that focus because I'm like, well, it's all going to be gospel. So it, it just, it kind of just focuses. You're like, well, 
I'm going to have to have something that sounds like this kind of style of gospel music. I'm going to have, to have something that at least references this thing that they always talk about in gospel music. And, you know, when you're just writing a song just from scratch, you can talk about literally anything, go anywhere, use any sample, use any sound. So it does make it easier when you just have like a focus. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a better record. <laughs> I mean, there's tons of, and usually concept albums are pretty dodgy historically. Sometimes they're really good. I feel like they're one or the other. They're either a grand slam, home run, or awful. There's not many in between concept albums. Yeah, but I mean, even when they're even when they suck, I do have a respect for them because you're like, well, I mean, they they had this idea and they they saw it through for better or worse, and you can't say that they didn't at least try to do something. They weren't at least trying to say something big or do something ambitious, like even if it fails miserably. Are there any creative opportunities that an album like Death of a Particle offers you, though, that a concept album wouldn't? Just having that freedom to well, yeah, just course. put together a batch of songs. What, yeah, what does that kind of open up for well, you? Well, it's the freedom, like you said. I mean, you can just do anything, go anywhere you want, use whatever you like. You can make it sound as disparate and kaleidoscopic and chaotic as you want. Or if you have one song that's about something very specific but doesn't fit into your, you know, you might not be able to use it in your concept album because it doesn't go with that concept, even if it's a great song. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, some, some people's best records of their whole career are just a collection of singles that have nothing to do with each other. You know, I can think of tons of bands like that. Which out of the two do you kind of learn more lessons from? Concept records are just collections of songs. It's different because it's sort of just different. Um, I don't know. It's like maybe the difference between when you're doing a concept album, you're really trying to make like a piece of art you know, as a whole, there's certain, you know, skills that are not skills, but like certain muscles that are exercised in that versus just coming up with, uh, you know, a couple of catchy songs, which is, you know, it's not better or worse. It's just a different uh, style, really. I mean, it's like the difference between making, I don't know, like a, a book or a poem or the difference between making like a movie or a TV show, maybe, for example. It's like they're both like, you know, just as good as each other if it's done right, I think. But ultimately, probably the movie or the book is going to be a lot more, you know, when I think about things <laughs> like good books that I've read in my life are probably the, the most impressive, like most meaningful thing, you know, because it's so hard and it's a lot of times it's so ambitious that when someone does it really good, it's like there's nothing quite like it. There's nothing as good as it. Just because it's so vast and you can impact so much. Right. And you can talk about it so much and you can get as deep into it as you want. Whereas like, you know, a good poem is great, you know, it's, but you read it in a second and it just doesn't have the impact that you can get, like, you know, by writing a huge novel. So, I mean, ultimately, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, really, if, when you're listening to it. Sometimes you just want to listen to a, a heater of a single, you know, put it on the mix, no, big, no biggie. But if you're like me and, and, and you really love music, you know, a lot of times the best albums are just albums that are made by, you know, like an auteur level artist that is really firing at all, on all levels and is really encompassing a work as a whole. It's almost like to kind of go with an analogy of what you were saying there, it's like albums are books and poems are songs, maybe? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sure, that's, that's, that's good enough. I mean, I think that would hold snuff if you thought about it. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> You got a book in you? Oh, man. I tried to write something, but I, I just don't know. I don't know if I... It's too hard. It really is hard. It was so hard, and then I 
thought it just sucked. And then I was like, man, I'm, I'm like, I need to start working on music because like, I actually have like obligations and people will actually listen to this. That's another thing. When you write a book, you're like, man, nobody's going to read this shit. It's like a total vanity project. When were you, when were you trying to write it? After the last record, oh, after okay. death of a Recently. party girl, I went to, well, it was a couple of years ago now. I went to New York with the idea that like, I was just going to like take a four months, five months sabbatical in New York and just like not work on music at all and just write this like idea for a book I had. And I did write a lot, but you know, not enough to like get close to like completing it. And then by the time I had to go back and tour, I was just swept up in music again. And that, that kind of just took over. And then that's like what I'm saying with the stuff that falls in the archives, that's how it happens. It's just like, you move on to something else and then, you know, it's hard to come back to something, especially when it's something that's like, um, that's not going to have any necessary external rewards, even as far as attention or money or whatever it is. Did it do anything for you creatively though? Could it have Definitely. Like a palate cleanser in any way? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, that part of it was great. You know, just to sit and write and think about, it was going to be like, uh, I'm a skateboarder and I thought, I was just thinking about the past and like my teenage years and my, my skate crew from when I was like in my middle and high school and just like how it, it was sort of like going to be like a memoir almost of like the, the birth and death of like the adolescent skateboard crew, you know, cause like you start skating and that's your whole life and you're with your best friends. And then like slowly and surely people drop out because of whatever reasons there's so much, you know, <laughs> because some people are good and some people aren't because girls and drinking and other sports come into play, you know, so everything kind of just like is, it's like you against the world and it's being slowly picked apart by like the real, real life as you hit that like crucial age. And so it was going to be like a coming of age, you know, bullshit based on like my real experiences with like my middle school skate crew, which was like so important to me back then. But like, I feel like, most people who are in that crew probably never think about it or like if that was important or what that meant to their lives in general. And I was like, that's kind of a shame because it was so important to us back then. Did you find yourself thinking about it quite a lot? Was that what brought you back to this idea of creating a book about it? Well, I really was. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, and you just think about the past as you get older and you think about, at least I do, you know, think about all the people back then and you know how you were so close and then you drift apart and what these people are lives are like and it, you know, it's, it's almost a shame that it's not commemorated in some way. That's kind of what it was. It's like, you know, it, this was just, in many ways, it was just the average story of like the, the adolescent Southern California skateboard, you know, crew. It was like a big part of our lives back then. And it's just like almost forgotten, you know, and that's kind of a shame because it was, you know, it's a shame that no one's commemorated that in some way or talked about it or thought about it. I was watching, you see him in my, uh, mid nineties. I haven't seen it, but yeah, I mean, it's funny because <laughs> just as I was thinking about this, like there was a whole spate of things that were definitely touching on similar themes that came out, including mid nineties. It, it would be interesting to explore in a book because mid nineties is a very kind of brief look at that. Yeah. I heard it was okay. I mean, I just have such bad, um, you know, the, the track record of skateboard movies is just atrociously bad. So I, that's why I'd probably like not check that out yet, but I, I probably should. Here's the best of the bunch. I don't think I've seen many of those. Yeah. I mean, there, there's been a couple, but they're all, they're all really, really bad. What about like skateboard vlogging or podcasts? Do you ever get into that? Yeah. I'm, I mean, the only podcast I listen to is this podcast called the bunt chance of skateboard podcast, but, um, vlogging is like, 
oh man, that was like hard to watch. <laughs> that was like kind of sad to me. Almost it's like can't believe something so cool like skating is like privy to these just like total total loser, just totally lame people. You know, it's like it sucks. <laughs> I can't believe they managed to suck like all the what's good and cool about skating out of out of skating. You know, you can never completely do that, but like they're definitely trying their hardest. I mean, like part of that ethos of skating, though, is that you don't care about it. That's part of what's cool about it. So as soon as you start trying to document it and film it in that way, right. you're setting yourself up for a fall. Right, exactly. And that kind of thing, you know, that this that kind of a gatekeeping attitude, as people call it, is like has a really bad, it's like, you know, people don't like that these days. But I'm like, man, there's like a good reason why people gatekeep skateboarding is because it's supposed to be cool. You know what I mean? It's like, it's supposed to be exclusive. If you are a skater, there's like a certain language that you understand that, and there's a certain way you look at the world that other people don't understand. Like, that's like the point. That's what's good about it. And so like, I'm like, they should gatekeep. Like we should make fun of these people because that's how historically skateboarders have like kept their community insular is like, because when people do a, a movie about skateboarding, the reason it's so bad is because, you know, obviously the actors don't skate, the director, the writer probably doesn't skate. So like uh, they're going to get things wrong because it's just, if you're not in that culture, like you're just not going to be able to talk the talk. It's going to be obvious to someone who skates that you're not in it. It's like instantly obvious. And that's the thing that's good about mid-90s that they were all skaters before they were actors. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that probably helped the cause of, of the movie, I'm sure. I haven't seen it, like I said, but. Those, they're all really good skaters. And Jonah Hill, I mean, has some sort of... He was a skater. I mean, he can claim that. He would, I don't know how, how deep into it he was, but he was definitely a skater at some point. So he has some, some sort of claim. How deep into it did you get? Well, I still skateboard. I mean, I, I live right next to a skate park and I go every day and uh, sometimes I go out and film. It's, it's a little hard because... It's not hard, but it's different because, you know, as you get older, especially at this age that I'm at now, like I'm 33... And all my friends who started skating, even the ones I had made later in college, you know, they all moved away or they stopped skating. So it's hard to make new, new friends as you get older that are like age appropriate, but still skateboard. But at least I'm in LA where it's probably the most possible of all the places on the planet. But yeah, I mean, I, I love skating. I'm, a, I'm pretty nerdy about it. Even though I'm not that, I'm, I was never that good. I mean, I'm, I'm better than most, obviously, because I've done it for so long. But even back then at, in my adolescent skate career, I was like the worst one of the bunch. And it's ironic that I was the only one who kept doing it. Have you kept doing it the whole way through? Or did you go away for a little bit and come back? I like kind of gave it up. I also fell prey to the, uh, the high school sports. I, had, I started playing water polo. You know, my parents made me play a legitimate sport. I remember trying to convince them, like, I just want to skate. I don't want to play sports. They made me. So I had to kind of give it up to a big extent in high school. Yeah, it's funny because after, after I stopped playing the last game of water polo when I was a senior, I never played water polo again. Never thought about it again. But I took up skating again and I've been doing that to this day. So I guess water polo is a little less accessible too, though. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's, you can't just go in water polo. Yeah, no, it's, it, the water polo is, is it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to do in every way. I heard you were a, a stand-up comic for a little bit too. I mean, yeah, just to a very minimal extent. But yeah, I did definitely do some open mics, probably about 10 of them. <laughs> did you ever work skating into that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. I don't think so. <laughs> that would have been a good gimmick, but no, I didn't think about that. I was, I was really bad at it. I was really bad. It's at it. tough. Yeah. Because like, 
I don't know. I think I'm maybe a decent like writer. I think I could, if I really put my mind to it, I could have like written jokes. Okay. But like the performing aspect of it, it was like, I was totally lost. I, it was bad when I actually tried to get up there and say, I'm just, everything was wrong. Are you a big reader? Is that what kind of leads into the writing? Yeah. Yeah. I've always been a big reader. I've always written stuff. Because you quite often quote, uh, quote, um, people on the liner notes, I think like passages from books, like public burning and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite books. Just thought it was sort of thematic resonant, thematically resonant with the record. And I don't know, it just sounded cool. <laughs> I mean, it just looks cool to put like a, you know, vague quote. I was like, when people do that. Yeah. It's almost like sampling again or referencing it. Or re- when you reference in your lyrics, does it, is there a kind of crossover there too with sampling? Yeah. Like, is it definitely yeah, all coming I mean, back to the same thing? Especially all over our music is references to famous pop songs or twists on famous tropes or lines or whatever, you know, I think that's, I don't know. It's just the way I think I'm such a fan of music. I can't, I kind of can't help it. You know, like I'm like pretty encyclopedic about music. And so like, if I'm writing something and, and something it's similar to a famous song that I know and like, and I can kind of like twist it, I'll usually won't resist that impulse because you know, it, it adds kind of an extra layer of meaning, you know, for people who know, get the reference and stuff. Yeah. I know that, yeah, when you're listening to someone else's record and then they reference something and it clicks in your mind and you get that, it's almost like when you connect with it emotionally, but on another level, because you know you're connecting with exactly what they intended you to. Mm-hmm. And you're having a conversation about, you know, uh, in, a, in a roundabout way, you know, you're having, a con- they said one thing and then you sort of say something that either relates to it or contradicts it. And you're just kind of like having a back and forth with like, a, you know, a famous artist who said something really iconic at some point. We were talking, you know, we were talking about books a little bit a few minutes ago because you've got the Pynchon reference as well on, it's on Who Really Cares, isn't it? I'm trying to think of the song. Taking What's Not Yours. Taking What's Not Yours, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite authors also. You read all his stuff. I've read everything but one book. I've, I'm on an ongoing project to read the, all of them and I have one, one to go. Are you saving it? I'm not saving it. I'm just reading other things right now and now. I'll get around to it when I can really, cause I'll go through periods where I, um, you know, the, the one I have to read is his longest one. It's against the day, which is a thousand plus pages. So like, that's going to be like a whole summer where I'm going to have to put aside to like really read that. At least. And right now I'm reading another big book and that's how I kind of had, I like reading really big, long marathon like books. And then I'll like palate cleanse with like short books or, or like my favorite, like easy popcorn read. I, I love like, uh, music biographies like those are like really easy and like really fun to read usually so i'll pad it out with some of that like after right now i'm re i'm rereading a book called the salt weed factor and that's one of my favorite books of all time and i'm rereading it. it's even better than the first time i read it and that's like over 700 pages so after i read read that i have a ricky lee jones's new autobiography which will be fun i think what brings you back to reread something i don't know i just i kept telling people about just how the, I think I lent it to my friend and I was like, you need to read this. And he just never read it. And then I was like, man, like this book's so fucking good. Like you got to read it. And then he just didn't. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to read it again. It was like, I kept telling him to read it and talking about how good it was. And I convinced myself, like it really was like just a great book. Like one of the best I've ever read. I, and I hardly ever reread books. And I'm like, I guess I should do that sometimes. Like it's hard to reread books because there's so many books you haven't read, but you know, every once in a while, it's, I think you should go back and reread books. It's definitely a um, good experience. Do you find yourself relating to it in a different way? When was it, when did you read it the first time? How many years ago? I read it in college 
as part of a class. I think I was literally the only person who actually read it because back then, you know, <laughs> it was like a semester, an English course where we had, it was, I think it was about early American history. We had to read like 12 books and it was just impossible. You know, nobody could, especially when you have four other classes that are also English classes, with 12 other books you have to read for each class. It's like just literally impossible to actually read everything. So people would just, you know, read spark notes or just get by based on descriptions of other people online. And so this book, the Sot weed factor, which is 700 pages long. I was, I was like, you know, probably nobody read it. And I was like, man, I, I'm going to read it just because like, I started reading it. I was like, man, this is like so good. Cause it's not even from the early American history. All the other stuff we had to read was of that time period. And this is a book written in the sixties that takes place in the early Americas. And it was like a postmodern author, John Barth, who was like, you know, related to Thomas Pynchon, who was my favorite author back then. And so I was like, I'm just going to read the whole book because, you know, no one else is going to read it. So I'm just going to do it. And I loved it. So now I just am rereading it. And it's like, it's even better than I remember. It's like one of the most fun books I've ever read. And it's deep and everything. Did you say it's kind of a postmodern look back at that time? It is. Yeah. It uses, yeah, it looks at early Americas through, you know, definitely a, a 60s postmodern lens, which is interesting. I mean, Thomas Pynchon has done that a lot to a great effect, too. Is that kind of what you're doing with the gospel record? Looking back at that type of music through a modern lens? Um, I don't know, because that music is still, it's always evergreen. You know, it's one of these subgenres which never kind of changes in a way, you know? They're still singing gospel music today that's kind of talking about the exact same things they were talking about in the 50s. It's just, just the superficial style has changed over the years. That's it. Themes are evergreen. Same thing with music at large, a little bit. If you look at what pop songs we're talking about in the 80s. Yeah, that's true. I guess there was more of a, an optimism about some of the 80s stuff, maybe. And a darkness to it as well. Yeah. Everything moves in cycles. That's true. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Music is like that, I think, you know, because there's only, like I'm saying, you can only talk about so many things in the space of a song. So, like, most people are going to talk about, you know, most people resort to talking about romantic relationships and, like, those issues are evergreen, you know. There's the same, <laughs> same problems that were in the 60s or the exact same problems we have in relationships today. So it's like, it's only the, the style has changed, it's hit. And sometimes not even that, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we come out to Vaporwave, it's very much emulating an older style. Yeah, but I mean, I was more referring to it. There's just, if you want to listen to a band that sounds like it was in the 60s, like there's lots of bands that like try as hard as they can to sound like as authentically 60s as possible today, you know? It's an interesting thing. We're kind of one of the periods in history where that feels most accessible. There's always someone trying to emulate something, but then there's also new stuff occurring. Like it's, yeah, like we were saying a minute ago, it's very postmodern. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, we live in just a postmodern stew. It is kind of a weird, weird time. I mean, I don't really have other times to judge it against so much. You only have your own personal lens. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's definitely opened up. And yeah, I mean, what can I say about it? It's like, yeah, you can listen to anything, literally anything from any period of history right next to each other with no effort. Which is good and bad, like everything. It feels like it maybe devalues it in some ways, but then in other ways it's quite liberating from a creation standpoint, maybe. Yeah, and from just a listening pleasure or something. There's nothing wrong with listening to a song from the 60s next to a song from today next to an 80s song. It's just a bit schizophrenic and, you know, you know, yeah, there's, you might not get as deep into a certain genre like you might, you know, back in the 80s. If you're, if you're really into goth music, you really had to invest in, 
being into that lifestyle to really access what you needed to, to find out what the good records were, to go to the good shows. You had to be in that life. Whereas now, if you have an interest in goth music, you can listen to, you know, the most obscure, you know, storied record from the 80s by some band that only put out one record and never played a show. And like, you can listen to it, you can think, oh, that was pretty good. And then just like, forget about it and listen to something else. It's like, back then, if you found, if you track, if you managed to track down that record, it means that you had gone through the work of like, you know, finding out about it, getting it, listening to it. And by that time, you'd probably really value it and think, you know, it'd probably be your favorite record or something like that. Or you'd at least think it was like really special. Does it come back to what, you know, we're talking, or you were saying earlier on about how the skateboarding culture kind of has that gatekeeping thing, which is very much mirrored in, mirrored in what you were saying there with the goth culture. Yeah. Does I, it kind of come back to, yes. Yeah, it does, thing. definitely. I mean, that's the good thing about skating is that there is a level that outsiders just can't do that with skating because they just won't be able to. I mean, you, it t- it's hard to skate, you know? <laughs> And in order to learn, you have to do it every day. In order to do it every day, you'll probably make friends with other skaters and et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to be in that culture, like you can't just be a, a tourist. You'll be found out immediately. It's probably, it's, you know, there's, it's kind of similar with goth culture, maybe. I don't know. It's like, I, I'm not sure. I'm not really in, in goth culture, but I assume like, you know, if, if you're into goth stuff or whatever, and you go to a goth show and start talking to someone who's really all about that life, like they'll, they'll know if they're talking to someone who doesn't know anything about it and they'll you know they'll hold that against you rightly so i'll find you out yeah what part of the process of creating is the most emotional for you well i mean probably sometimes performing old music is kind of an emotional thing just the nature of touring you have to go sing songs talking about emotions that you once had that now you don't about people you once knew and now you don't and so that can bring memories flooding back or it can just get you thinking on life and the path of your life and the path of other people's lives and how they've intertwined and diverted and et cetera, et cetera. So like it can be, I don't, I don't want to say intense, but it can just definitely, it can bring emotions about in you that you weren't really planning on or you wouldn't have otherwise delved into because you just have to sing them night after night and kind of revisit that headspace again and again. You develop tools to deal with that. Well, yeah, you develop, I mean, for me, at least you just to kind of, you necessarily just kind of have to develop a distance, you know? I mean, for me, live performing is like, you know, I consider myself a writer first, a songwriter second, and a performer, like distant third, you know, something I do because like I kind of have to, it's not something I really gravitate towards. So when I put on, when we do a show, it's just like, well, this is just a show. I'm basically playing dress up here and I'm just like doing... (laughs) doing uh, what I think is like the tropes of a show. I'm basically writing what a sh- I think a show is. And you know, some performers, they really, that is their main outlet. They love performing and they really get off on that connection with the audience. And that's like, that's where it's at for them. But that's not what it's like for me. So uh, when I do a show, there's sort of a distance, you know, an ironic distance a lot of times. What, is that part of what drives you to keep making stuff? Once you develop the distance with your old music, do you feel the need to kind of create new stuff? I don't know. I feel like you're just compelled. You know, if, if you are a writer, you're just compelled to write. It's just for what that's what makes you a writer or not. You know, you're just compelled to do it for whatever reason. Like I would be writing if I wasn't in a popular band. You know, I would still be making music. I'm sure. I'm sure about that. I don't know. Yeah, it's just like a compulsion, really.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.